This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals, with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. Hey, podcast listeners. Peter and I hope our conversations about the musicals we love is prompting some further thoughts and conversation for you. And so we hope that you'll consider joining us under the auspices of Vancouver School of Theology in British Columbia for a class that we'll be teaching on Zoom this summer called The Gospel and Musical Theater, Race and Redemption. We'll be focusing on questions of race and how they factor into the history of musical theater, as well as what we can learn from one another as we reflect theologically on these questions as they show up in in some of our favorite musicals like Annie Get Your Gun, Showboat, Ragtime, and West Side Story, Into the Heights, and Hamilton, and many, many more, there is no more important topic for people of faith to be confronting right now, we believe, than white supremacy and the many, many ways it has played out in North American history and culture. So we'll be teaching on Zoom. You can join us from wherever you happen to be, July 12th through the 16th this summer. We hope that you'll join us. You can read more and register at the Vancouver School of Theology website. That's www.vst.edu backslash summer school. Hope to see you there. Welcome to the Gospel and Musical Theater. My name is Peter Elliott. I'm a Anglican priest from Vancouver, British Columbia, retired cathedral dean, and very happy to be working with my friend Nathan LaRude. I'm Nathan LaRude, also an Anglican cathedral dean, Anglican Episcopalian in Portland, Oregon. And we are here to talk about the music of Rodgers and Hammerstein today. This is the Gospel According to Musical Theater. And we are going to talk about The King and I from 19... Peter, remind me, 1952? Gosh, I think 52 is right. And it's really the... If we put brackets around Allegro, the one Rodgers and Hammerstein show that really didn't make it. And I think King and I is before Flower Drum Song. I think that's right. King and I follows yeah. up on South Pacific, the great the great success Pacific. of South Pacific. Yeah. So the big question in the kind of early 50s was, what are they going to do to top South Pacific, which is, you know, won every award and is selling out every theater it ever opens in and is a cultural, it's the Hamilton of its day. It's a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Um, and, how do you, and how do you top South Pacific? Um, and that's, the, of course, the question that Rogers and Hammerstein are asking themselves as well. What do we, where do we go from here? What do we do? And according to legend, Gertrude Lawrence's agent was looking for a, a return vehicle for Miss Lawrence, who hadn't had a hit in years, hadn't done a musical in, I think, tw- uh, 10 years, 15 years. The scuttlebutt was her voice is thinning out quite a bit, and she's 51, 52. So this is, of course, an era not entirely dissimilar from our own in which you know women when they reach a certain age kind of get tossed out with the trash and nobody wants to see them do certain things but Gertrude Lawrence is still a star with an incredible kind of star quality everybody who who saw her in the role says yeah you know she really couldn't hit all the notes she was going she was going flat a lot and it didn't matter when she walked on stage yeah. there was a luminosity to this woman that made up for everything you couldn't take your eyes off of her the Roger Hammerstein were sure that they wanted to do a star vehicle. They weren't. They weren't sure that writing right. around the predilections of a of a diva. And Gertrude Lawrence was a little bit of a diva. Was really what they were interested. A in. A little bit. The, <laughs> the press that I read. I'm being very compassionate said, to Ms. Lawrence. <laughs> said she's a complete diva, and it was apparently Oscar Hammerstein's wife and Gertrude Lawrence's agent who persuaded. Oscar Hammerstein and Richard Rogers to to do the show, and only after they'd seen the mu- movie adaptation. That's right. Have you ever seen um, that film, the Irene Dunn, Rex Harrison, and Rex Harrison? Yeah, a long time ago. I've if never at all. seen it. 
I've never seen it. Yes. Yeah, that was apparently what kind of convinced them. Because I think Rajan Hammerstein had looked at the book when it first came out and yeah. said, yeah, this is, it's episodic. There's no plot here. Exactly. Like, what, what how could we, how could thing? we possibly do this? Which is ironic because that's, I mean, South Pacific is all, you know, kind of discrete little episodes and they were able to kind of create a plot. It's interesting that, right. that for whatever reason, reading, reading Anne and the King, they, they thought, eh, no, it's not going to work. And then saw the film and thought, okay, there is a story here. And it's kind of, I mean, we might get into this, you know, is it a love story? Is it not? But it seems like the relationship, the kind of uh, evolving, growing relationship between the king and Anna became kind of their doorway into it. Um, yeah. That that was a that was a relationship that intrigued at least Hammerstein, and he said, "I think I can do I think I can do a treatment of this story." Yeah, and it's interesting when I've been thinking about it of their you know of the five great Rogers and Hammerstein shows: Caris, uh, Oklahoma, Carousel, South Pacific, King and I, and Sound of Music. Only two are situated in the United States. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Um, yeah, just just Carousel, Maine, I guess, uh, and Oklahoma. Clearly, Oklahoma without an indigenous person anywhere near. But that's we've already talked about that. But the other three, South Pacific, and then going even further east mm -hmm. into uh, Thailand is where we really are, formerly called Siam by its colonial name. And then Sound of Music, obviously going to Austria in, in the European continent, but telling distinctively American stories yeah. in some ways uh, and dealing in The King and I with the problematic narrative of Anna uh, Leon Owens. So she's an interesting character. Her actual history, at least my online research, there's a fairly obscure background here. Certainly raised in uh, England's India, the Raj, mm -hmm. and probably with Indian ancestry, probably her maternal grandfather, I think. And she kind of tried to she kind of tried to hide that, right? Like, exactly. She always said, "Oh, I'm Welsh," and that was how she explained I'm the Welsh. fact that she was darker <laughs> complected than people expected exactly. an English woman to be. But yeah, it seems it seems like there was some deliberate erasure or playing fast and loose with her own ethnic heritage. Yeah, yeah, which is and a fascinating then, thing to think about that she herself is a is a person possibly of mixed race and very much a product of colonialism. Very much a product of colonialism, and of course, like the English in the Raj in this period of time, the late nineteenth uh, century, they were more English than the English. You know, I mean, the English accent and everything that that's not put on that would be very much what the British upper class in pre Gandhi's England, uh, India would ha would have done. So yeah, her coming ostensibly from England. You know, yeah. Um, in the show, she comes from England, doesn't she? I think in in actual life, she was in Singapore when yeah. King Put kind of reached out and said, like, "Hey, I need somebody to." I, I and I think what the the impetus for the for the king was, I want somebody to come and teach some of my children English, and I don't want missionaries. Right. Missionaries right. were banned from Thailand. I think most Western influences were, were kept at bay. So he's kind of, you know, walking this really interesting thin line, you know, opening his nation up to trade for both economic reasons and also to kind of put some boundaries around Western incursion into his society. But really seeking to, you know, in some ways, I think, protect 
his his kingdom, his world from Western influence uh, and, right. and had a kind of instinct that, you know, I don't want anybody coming in to proselytize. We're Buddhists. We don't need your Christianity. Thank you very much. But this woman who's not a missionary, what is she? She's a she's a school teacher. She's a governess. She's a um, school teacher, so a governess. Yeah. Yeah. And and just while we're we're on uh, Anna and just thinking about Rogers and Hammerstein's canon more fully the presence of strong women is something I think really to celebrate about Rogers and Hammerstein long before women were really celebrated as uh, the long for the feminist movement is what I'm trying to say. Certainly um, Maria von Trapp in the sound of music, which we'll talk about next episode, Anna Leon, Leon Owens in the King and I, Nellie Forbush in mm-hmm, South Pacific degree. is yeah. very much, she's a professional woman. She's yeah. a nurse. I mean, she does, I mean, the plot largely revolves around her relationship with Emma de Beck. And Julie Jordan, in her own way, just going back to Carousel, just to give Julie in Jordan her own a, way. Yeah, she's the, in she's her the tr- own way. She's the trickiest one to, I, and I would, I would put, I would put Laurie in, in there. I mean, you know, kind of yeah. in, in many ways, a conventional ingenue, but in, but also kind of pushing at some of the ingenue tropes in some, in some ways. But that, that trajectory really finds its full flowering, I think, in Annalia Owens. In some ways, she's the first uh, first of, of, I guess, really two, fully fleshed out. And, and it's, maybe it's important to say, you know, written for a 50-year-old woman. And this is the first yes. time that Rogers and Hammerstein had written a role for a woman who was not, you know, she was not meant to be the ingenue. And even Nellie Forbush, to a certain degree, right? She's still, right. she's young. She, you know, like the age difference between her and Emile is significant. Um, yeah. And here we're working on something very different. We're writing a very different kind of story for a very different kind of woman. There were some, I mean, you know, I think about sort of Ethel Merman, right? There had been some other anything goes has already been on Broadway. There have been some attempts to write interesting roles for women who were what do we want to say not sexualized in the same way that a young yes. ingenue would have been sexualized, but had a kind of power. But this is before Hello Dolly, Mame, Mame, yeah, yeah. these really yeah. kind of interesting meaty roles for I mean star vehicles, right? For divas who were yes. no longer in the kind of their young prime of being convincing as a kind of young romantic lead, maybe, but were ready to play a woman of kind of riper years, we might say, who still had sex appeal who still had a kind of I mean you, they still have romantic storylines but that's not that's not what's driving the character in the same way these are women with power and they own yes. the stage they own the musical there's a reason it's called The King and I, right? Like the whole thing was written around Gertrude Lawrence before Yul Brenner becomes a star and kind of shifts the spotlight in some really interesting ways. You know, when you, when Yul Brenner won the, the Tony Award for this role, it was for Best Supporting Actor, right? The King was was not designed that. as the lead role in this musical. The lead, right. is, she runs the show. It's her show. She totally runs the show. Her son, who sort of gets relegated after whistling a happy tune on the boat into a kind of tertiary or whatever beyond tertiary's role um he fades into the background and and really american audiences now are presented with here's the court of the king polygamous a whole lot of wives a domineering uh, patriarchal character doesn't allow anybody's head to be higher than his uh, as you say a buddhist culture 
Although Rogers and Hammerstein's comparative religion class might have been a little weak. I, whenever I see this and they uh, yeah. start singing all hail Buddha, I think okay. uh, they needed a interfaith advisor yeah. somewhere to say this wasn't. Anyway. Oh, they needed they needed all kinds of cross-cultural advisors that they did not avail. Actually, very deliberately. Did, I mean, that was a choice, right? Like there were other yeah. options. Porgy and Bess. 15 years earlier, uh, not a commercial success, but had, you know, the, the creators of Porgy and Bess, for all their failings, were attempting to do something really interesting, right? Uh, create an authentic, or at least a kind of authenticity to the the experience, an experience that white audiences did not see on Broadway very often, right? Catfish Row, the world right. of uh, Gullah culture in, in Charleston, South Carolina, trying to, you know, and they were a bunch of, you know, New York, first generation Jewish guys, many of them gay. So, you know, like there's there's a whole bunch, who's, who's, whose version of Gullah culture is is this well it's not authentic but it's but it's an, it's an attempt to be f yeah. uh, faithful to a different culture and that was i mean rogers told jerome robbins the choreographer of the king and i like don't bother trying to make this authentic right like find your own you know find your own dance language because he said that's what i'm doing musically i tried to ape you know authentic oriental sounds with lorenz hart 25 years ago in chi 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 was a huge flop not doing it again so richard rogers creates his own kind of version but he's he's very deliberately not attempting to write authentic mm -hmm. Thai music. He's writing yeah, Broadway true. music with a little bit of a kind of quasi, I'm putting scare quotes around this oriental flavor that tells yeah, us a lot about of, 1950s. A lot of force. Yeah, a lot of force, um, a lot of open fifths. A lot of open fifths. Um, but nothing, and, uh, nothing authentic. They were, they, were, they were very deliberately not doing authenticity. That was not the interest. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, there was this fascination with uh, the, in quotes, orient, with the right. kind of the exotic, Far East um, that I think it, it played into, I mean, not uh, just a, a, a few decades after Madama Butterfly, after um, the Mikado by Gilbert and Sullivan. So there, there is the kind of creation, gosh, we saw a production of this at Stratford, Ontario, a bunch of years ago where they uh, sent the set and costume designer off to Thailand, who must have come back with a shipload of silks. Mm -hmm. And they basically had the entire theater draped with these extraordinarily beautiful silks and fabulous costumes. So there is this kind of whole world that gets presented, wives cowering in front of a diminutive king, kind of like the Wizard and the Wizard of Oz, strong and sturdy, but... Mm -hmm. uh, usually it certainly as played and i think yule brenner turned this into a lifelong he kept playing the king until he five, was in his five thousand performances over the course of his life <laughs> like, i mean like the, the man just owned the role for so long yeah played it well into his i think at, at a certain way he was revived in the i don't remember when the 70s and his his voice was so bad that his son had to had to be stand down in the orchestra pit and sing and do all of his lines and yul brenner just mouthed the whole thing because his voice was completely <laughs> shot but rock brenner was able to step in for him and but, but he's still right like the bald kind of image of the guy with his little his coat open i mean like that is such an iconic image yeah. uh and and created the phenomenon that was yul brenner in so many ways and there's always the problem of how do you get, I mean, there aren't a lot of Thai actors 
at least certainly not in the 1950s and for the last few decades working in professional theater. I mean, it tends to be a multinational kind of right. cast with all sorts of the production we saw um, most recently. I think the king was actually Mexican hmm. and the children are usually made up of a variety of Asian uh, parade of nations, not so much a parade of nations. Yeah. Anyway, once Anna gets to be with the children, and it's one of my favorite moments, and we've talked about in our classes before. There's a map on the wall of the way that the Siamese were seeing the world, their understanding of the world, with of course Siam at the center and everything else revolving around, Mm -hmm. and she pulls down a map of. The, the map that a lot, lots of us recognize of the world and they are, the children are abs and the king are absolutely flabbergasted with this presentation of what the world looks like. And of course it's the, the projection from uh, the British Commonwealth with every country of the Commonwealth in pink, which was largely because red wouldn't reproduce on, on maps, a very colonial, a British colonial understanding of the world. And uh, in the moments preceding that, and then of course the song that comes along is Getting to Know You, mm-hmm. we get this interesting dialogue between Anna and the children about how the world is actually constructed. Getting to know you. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. Getting to like you, getting to hope you like me. Getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely. You are precisely my cup of tea. Getting to know you, getting to feel free and easy. Haven't you noticed, suddenly I'm bright and breezy Because of all the beautiful and new things I'm learning about you Day by day Yeah, it's actually, I think it's a really telling scene both for for what Rogers Hammerstein I think are trying to do, which is tell a story about two very different cultures. We might even say two very different genders. There's a lot of kind of interesting interplay between what do Anna and the King represent. But you know they're they're creating a culture clash, and you know very much along the lines of South Pacific, right? Like this is the sort of at least for Hammerstein, still sort of the agenda of racial reconciliation, gender reconciliation. How how can we overcome our differences and learn? I, I mean, literally, like getting to know you is in some ways the the soft side of you've got to be carefully taught, right? I mean, those two songs oh, are coming yeah. from the same place for him, right? You yeah. think about the lyrics, getting to know you, getting to know all about you, getting to like you, 
getting to hope you like me. Haven't you noticed suddenly I'm bright and breezy because of all the beautiful and new things I'm learning about you day by day? Sung by a British colonial, what, what do we want to call her? A sort of conqueror, if you like, uh, to the, the culture that she, you know, in some ways has come to change. And that, you know, that dynamic, I expect we're going to talk about this. You know, there, there's so much that Anna can't see because of her, all of the blind spots that she's got by virtue of her upbringing and where she's coming from, you know, and that map scene really illustrates all of that, right? Lady Tiang shows the children a map of the way the world is. Here's Siam in the middle, here's the king of Burma, and he's, you know, he's barefoot and poor because Burma's our big enemy. And, you know, she's imparting a kind of cultural script to these children, yes. right? This is what's most important for you to know about our place in the world, how we understand our neighbors, and in some ways, it's a it's a really it's pretended as a joke by Rajan Hammerstein, right? Oh, look at these silly, you know, look at these silly Orientals. Uh, isn't this sweet? Isn't this, you know? But they don't yes. they don't understand. But it's actually yeah. a really interesting scene because you see Lady Tiang in a role of authority. You see her teaching. You see her empowered to transmit her culture to her children and to the other children of her fellow wives. And then Anna kind of basically interrupts her. Thank you, Lady Tiang. Thank you pulls down this new map. Aren't you lucky, children? We've been given this new map by my government, and here's the way the world really is. And my job is to teach you how things really are. She, yeah. you know, imposes a colonialist mindset on them. She doesn't make reference to the fact that, like, look at all the pink on the map, right? Like, that's the extent of the British Empire. But we see that as an audience. The children see that. But then she pivots and sings a song about how you are actually teaching me something. Now she's, you yes. know, like it's, it's a little, it's treacly, it's a little Sunday schooly, it's a little, it's do re mi at a certain level, right? Like, oh, isn't that cute? This white woman and all these, you know, cute little brown eyed children. I mean, there's something a little, I don't know, weird to me about that it's image. Cloying, yeah. yeah, it's cloying in a certain way. It's meant to be yeah. sweet. But underneath yeah. it, Hammerstein is, I mean, he is doing something really interesting, right? It's not just you're getting to know me so that I can teach you something. At least the, the invitation of the song is that kind of learning is going to go both ways. And, and to a certain degree, we see that in Anna and the King's relationship too, right? I mean, yeah. he is a, like the children. He's treated as childish. He's treated as kind of a, what, a stereotype. You know, he's not, we're, we're not really taking him seriously, in the way that I think, you know, the historical King Mongkut deserves to be taken seriously. He was an incredible guy, very learned man, spoke, you know, a ton of different languages, was an astronomer, a physicist, a Buddhist monk for tw the first 26 years of his life, uh, deeply steeped in his own culture, but also very interested in figuring out how to navigate this weird situation he was in where, you know, the colonialist impulse was was huge, kind of, you know, figuring out how can I trade with Western powers without becoming Westernized myself, doing this really interesting dance celebrated today in Siam. And that's actually, I, I think the reason the king and I is kind of banned in um, in Thailand is because they don't like the way that their king, I mean, they're kind of one of their great heroes is being presented here. He's presented as kind of a childlike joke. And and there, you know, therein, I think, lies the, the gospel issue for us, the theological issue about King and I, not that it uh, is a missionary. In fact, it's explicitly not a missionary story. But you begin to see the intersection of colonial, the colonial mindset and the missionary mindset. Mm -hmm. um, and from a Canadian perspective where, you know, uh, a British colony until the patriation of the Constitution in 1980, we and continuing as a constitutional monarchy with England, we were subject to all of the assumptions of British colonialism. I mean, that map with the pink on it representing the British Empire is what I was shown. And of course, uh, the 
playing out of how colonialism married to Christian missionary zeal led to the policies of assimilation for Indigenous people. It's not far for most Canadians looking at the King and I and a colonial educator to be thinking about the Indian residential schools in Canada and the impact of all of that and and begins to raise all the issues about culture, what is the what is the relationship between culture and faith, even though they're not telling a missionary story explicitly so, Rogers and Hammerstein, they're telling a story about the imposition of one culture on another. And it's not all a bad story because there are well, so many things ah, that it opens up, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's I mean it's presented as a liberating culture, right? Like you know, the, the, the things that Anna is seeking to change are expanding the role of women in this culture, sort of destroying some of the hierarchical assumptions, right? Like she's, she's aghast that there's this whole kind of posture of submission that everybody's asked to take whenever they, I mean, there's a, that's the big argument between her and the king, right? Like my, my head can't yes. be higher than the king's and she's always kind of pushing at that, right? So this, this uh, in some ways, she's, she's a, uh, for an English woman, she's blatantly Americanized, right? Like all yes. of the kind of assumptions of American democracy and we're a classless society and women are fully in French. You know, we can work, we can have our own. I mean, think about Anna's great, you know, motivating thing is I want my own house, right? Like I need my I own. I want my own house. She's, she's a and 1950s think of this in the 1950s. proto-feminist. Yeah. Exactly, right? Exactly. Like a room yeah. of my own, right? Like I want my yeah. own space. I want my own autonomy. I am bowing to no man. I will be deferential yes. to him, but I'm never going to, you know, it's like, but you know, he does he pushes back. They have this kind of interesting, sometimes vaguely erotic dance around power. But she, yeah. you know, the, the, the values that she's seeking to impose, I think many of us would say, you know, they're, they're, prog- they're mid-20th century progressive values. King and I is about slavery and it's about women's emancipation. But I th- yes. embedded in that, right, is this, you know, I think this really interesting question about cultural imperialism, right? Is it okay to go into a That's society the word, yeah. where there are, where there is a different role for men and women? I mean, like, when is it appropriate to adjudicate, I mean, to come into a, a society and say, this is wrong? I mean, essentially, she's exactly. adjudicating sin, right? Like, she, she sees yeah. the king as a barbarian. Um, so to a certain degree, she's getting to know him. And to a certain degree, she's very uninterested in actually getting to know these people. I mean, and that's true of the women too. She sees them as subjugated and doesn't really investigate her own assumptions around that. I mean, her own, I mean, we might say, you know, her own assumptions as a mid-Victorian woman in a gigantic hoop skirt. I mean, who's, who's being subjugated exactly. here, Anna? You're the only one who's wearing yeah. 70, 75 pounds of, of gown on you. <laughs> so, I mean, like there's, there's some well, really all this... interesting unexplored questions there. Yeah, and all of it really comes to the head with uh, with the true romantic relationship in The King and I, a secondary couple, and we're used now in our conversations about musical theater to know Rodgers and Hammerstein and lots of other musical theaters wanting to have two couples kind of to contrast with each other, uh, uh, Julie Jordan and Billy Bigelow and the, uh, the Snow family. But here we have uh, Tuptin and Luntha, Tuptim brought into Siam uh, from Burma by the scholar Lun Tha as a junior wife for the king, but secretly and wonderfully secretly and tragically secretly, they are in love with each other uh, and get to sing. Uh, Anna gets to sing great uh, hello young lovers really to them, but then they get to sing We Kiss in the Shadow, which 
for my money is one of the great songs of uh from from the from the musical theater canon mm-hmm. um, one, of, one of the great a, queer songs of the musical theater well canon. i was gonna say yeah, yeah this yeah. this whole sense of of love that cannot be public mm-hmm. that needs to be hidden We saw a production a bunch of years ago, just a kind of songbook of Rodgers and Hammerstein, four actors, uh, and for uh, We Kiss in the Shadow was given to two guys to sing, sort of encountering each other in a back alley in the 1970s, let's say. <laughs> Kissing um, in a shadow, is that what they were doing back yeah. then? <laughs> I would, I would but it was change really the, the verb there, but sure. Just, just moving that song from the context of the king's court or outside the king's court into, uh, but yeah, truly one of the great, uh, the great gay songs. And of course, uh, the king murders Luntha and wants to strike Tim until Anna stops him. Yeah. Again, another moment sort of almost reminiscent of Carousel coming back here. We have a moment of domestic violence stopped in, in mid-motion, as it yeah. were. Yeah, it's such a it's such an interesting moment, isn't it? Because it's I mean, in at, at one level, it's played as the king's I mean, kind of emasculation by Anna, right? Like that's by the Anna. he he cannot exercise his kingship. I mean, in some ways, it's a really interesting. You talked about the kind of the Oriental and Orientalist trope that's being explored here, and, and it it completely is. But it reverses it in a really interesting way, right? Usually in the in the Orientalist trope, it's the woman who is the the quote unquote or you know she's the the threat right she's the dark you know so you think about madame butterfly right uh, antony and cleopatra is this story cleopatra is the dark you know dusky east who's going to you know who's going to kind of exert her so orientalism and femininity are kind of mapped onto each other in the orientalist trope right it's the it's the yeah. dangerous feminine and the sort of solidly western white masculine empowerment is what is attracted to this other but also you know threatened by this other and here it's reversed 
right? He yes. is the Orientalist uh, trope. He is the you know, and he and he and he stands for you know total authority and kingship and a kind of virility. I mean, there's a reason that you know he has his jacket open throughout the whole thing, right? I mean, he is a a virile king, young king, and she is the she's the Western. Uh, the the, the, the yes. Western is feminized in a really interesting way, right? So it's it's the it's the feminizing threat of egalitarianism and women's rights and this whole kind of different agenda, and it it stops the king in his track, and he cannot whip tupped him. I mean, he he cannot right. he can't get it up. I mean, really, she she domesticates him in this really yes. kind of fascinating way, and and it destroys him. I mean, in the context of the show, right? We're sort of I think meant yeah. to draw a direct line from that moment to the next time we see the king, which is on his deathbed. She kills yes. him. The West yeah. destroys him. Yeah, it's and which is I mean, it's interesting to kind of draw that connection with Billy Bigelow, right? Because like that's well, yeah. so clear to us, right? Like that's abhorrent that Billy would think about striking his daughter, but here you've got the king getting ready to whip tupped him. And I think, you know, the audience is, hope, I mean, we're meant, I think, to feel very strange about this, right? Of course he shouldn't yes. whip tupped him, but the reason he's not is because of colonialism. It's because of this woman and her agenda. It's a, it's a really complicated situation. It's the, it's the colonial West saving the yeah. primitive East. It, yeah. it, just like it was the colonial attitudes that were going to save the savage Indians as they were thought about yep. from yep. to, to, to civilize. To, right. He is civilized um, and domesticated in the process. He is destroyed. I mean, she yeah. destroys him. And, and, you know, and, at the end, we've got his son, right, who changes all the rules. And I, I think we're meant yes. to be a little misty eyed about the death of this old way, even, you know, even as we can see. Yeah. You know, like it meant that women were subjugated in a certain kind of way. And there was, you know, but but the end of the musical, right, is sort of like this new day for Siam, ostensibly. Right. They're coming into the enlightened Western umbrella. And I think it's and, I think it's good for us to feel unsettled by that. I, mean, I is think that, so. And, and, is that and, the and Anna is is weeping over the, the dead king's body. And. You know, one of the great, we've talked before about the great uh, Richard Rogers uh, anthem soaring in the background. So this time it's something wonderful by Lady Thiang. And when you think about the words of it, it's not that dissimilar from Carousel's What's the Use of Wondering? You know, oh. what's the use of wondering if he's good or if he's bad, yeah. or if you like the way he wears his hair. He's your fellow and you love him. Yeah. Uh, in, in The King and I, it's he may not always say what you would have him say, but, but I mean, in other words, he's a jerk, you know, <laughs> he's a sexist, uh, patriarch. I'm uh, his head wife and there are another 80 of us. Yeah. Uh, but every now and then he says something wonderful. Hmm. <laughs> he has a He's 
I mean, is that enough? Is wow. the the music is great, mm-hmm. the lyric is problematic, I think, in some ways. Yeah, and yet in the I mean, in the sort of Rodgers and Hammerstein genre, she's cast in the contralto priest role, right? I mean, she's the officiant right. of this thing. She's her her antecedent is is Nellie from from Carousel. You know, the, the Reverend Mother in The Sound of Music is going to pick up this baton to a certain degree. Bloody Mary yeah. is, you know, also although that's a more problematic version yeah. of the the contralto priestess. But that's I think that's kind of where Lady Tian. I mean, she's she's the older woman, or you know, the maybe more mature woman who kind of picks the ingenue up and you know it's not it's you know it's anna so she's not really the ingenue but teaches her something about what it is to be a woman in this society right and it's and the lesson she's imparting is a problematic lesson it's a problematic lesson and it's the answer to getting to know you right so if you really want to get to know this man right you You have to learn to love him yeah you 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 have to learn to love him yeah oh you you can't just dismiss him. Yeah. You can't change him fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Um, you may alter his behavior, but if you look deep enough into the king, you're going to see, well, something wonderful. Something wonderful, and, yeah. That he's that he's worthy of your respect and your and your love and maybe even your yeah your appreciation. In some ways, it's so interesting because in the king and I all the the kind of the gender stuff kind of you know in some ways it does follow a similar trajectory to Carousel, but it kind of runs right up against the trajectory of the colonial racial stuff, right? They exactly. they they operate almost at cross purposes in ways that in some ways make it. I mean, I don't know. Would you call King and I intersectional? I don't think I would. There's, I mean, you know, the show has so so many, I don't know, weird assumptions from 1952 that really do make it problematic. <laughs> but it is, yeah. it is doing something that's kind of vaguely intersectional in the ways that the the gender and empowerment stuff runs right up against these kind of colonial racial tropes and makes these scenes really complicated. There's not a, you know, there's not a right answer to this situation. And raises theologically, I think, a whole bunch of questions about compassion and forgiveness and understanding, particularly in situations that are uh, foreign to us. Mm-hmm. And it, it, you know, the the depth of the importance of forgiveness within the Christian symbol system and believing system and so forth uh, can't be overemphasized. And it's too easy, I think, to make forgiveness. Well, it's just something you do. I mean, how if you're Anna with a uh, king who is keeping, um, well, he's murdering uh, a lover of one of his junior wives, I guess, Mm -hmm. keeping everybody literally under his thumb. Um, What does forgiveness mean? What does... How does forgiveness and understanding extend in this cross-cultural environment? And and what's the and I think I'm not I don't I don't have the answer to these. I'm just sort of posing them rhetorically. What is the the right stance of uh, of a colonial to a as they encounter a world of such enormous difference? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can almost That's imagine Anna saying, lifting a line right out of South Pacific, right? Like when, when Nellie says to, to Joe Cable, you and I are a long way from home. I mean, that is where she finds herself. Yeah. And, and, and it really, I yeah. mean, it, it raises a lot, I think. In some ways, I don't want to say more complicated than South Pacific, but, but questions that are, that are complicated in different ways because the King and I is so much about gender and empowerment. 
um, and the cross-cultural yes. dynamics of being a woman in a very different context in which women are treated in a particular kind of way. And, I mean, and also in a different time, right? Like this is 1865, so there's that level of it too. Um, yes. a, lot, a lot of The King and I is about slavery, you know, sort of in the context of the American Civil War. And we haven't even really talked about the weird phenomenon that is the small house of the uncle little thomas. house of uncle thomas <laughs> not uh, <laughs> not a ballet piece that has aged particularly well but <laughs> there it is no but but must be done apparently with every production of it i think it's yeah. part of the and uh, it's worth talking about just for a minute uh, as we wind down here i mean number number one uh when i think as I, it's my least favorite part of the king and i i don't think i'm alone but number one just to acknowledge and admire rogers and hammerstein's conviction that dance must be incorporated yeah i love that about yeah. it i love that there's a ballet in oklahoma i love that there's a ballet in carousel not i don't particularly South love the ballet in the king and i not in yeah. south pacific, south pacific or the king and some... i they don't they don't have it but yeah in 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 the king and i it is it they're they're and there is jerome robbins you know like what you know they they pick the best choreographers of their day to do this stuff agnes de mill yes. jerome robbins i mean like these are these are people who are pushing the art form forward in incredible ways now you know the small house of uncle thomas right like ooh, what is this is it kabuki theater is it but yeah, they're and obviously trying to bring in the agenda of the liberation of African Americans from slavery, and overlaying that into the cultural dynamic of yeah, Thailand. Of Thailand, and it's, I mean, it's um, interesting. You know, Tup Tim tells a kind of an, a heavily edited version of of Uncle Tom's Cabin, it's, and actually, really, it's it's more the Exodus story. You know, the, the scene, the famous scene yeah. from the, the ballet is, you know, when, when Eliza is supposedly crossing the, the river on ice and then it turns to liquid and Simon Legree is, I and mean, that's a scene that it doesn't show up in the Harriet Beecher Stowe novel. That's Exodus, right? So actually, I mean, yes. in some ways, what yes. Tuftim is doing is taking the Christian sacred, or the Hebrew sacred text, uh, telling that story in the context of a, a Buddhist, you know, Southeastern Asian culture in ways that, you know, that are filtered through the lens of a bunch of Broadway, you know, <laughs> a bunch of Jewish guys, a <laughs> bunch of Jewish gay guys. Uh, always a dangerous recipe for, you know, all kinds of stuff. But it's an inter it's a really fascinating kind of mix of stories yeah. that are really, I mean, it's really about Tuptim and about what she's looking for yes. from the king. Um, using, the, I mean, it's, in some ways, it's it's sort of like Hamlet, you know, putting on the play to indict the king. That's that's Players exactly what's going on in King yeah. and I. Tuptim is telling the story yeah. to indict her lord and master, um, and 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 yes. the king behaves exactly as as Claudius does in Hamlet. Right? He interrupts the production, throws everybody out of the space. Right? He is incensed. Yes. Uh, by this. Yes. Thing. Yes. It's. I think at its best, it's seeking to speak truth to power. Right. It's that moment of uh, of of the king is not going to be allowed to get away with this, and and again, it's such a uh, typical Rogers and Hammerstein trope of love is going to ultimately conquer all things here, and and particularly romantic love, particularly heterosexual romantic love, is is is, is salvation. Yes. Although you think about, I mean, you know, Tuptim and Lunthod, you know, he dies. We assume she yes. says she's going to kill herself. We take her at her word. We never hear from her again. In the in the book, she's burned at the stake. And, you know, Anna and the king have something like a moment of reconciliation, but it's on his deathbed, too. So, I mean, the, the, the trope of the heterosexual marriage story is here, but it's not yeah. things don't end in a bow, really. In the king and I, right. both of our love right. couples, and if not tragically, one tragically, uh, and the other one ambiguously at best. So it yes. is an interesting. I don't know. There is an interesting kind of. I don't want to say critique of, 
But it's not a neat, tidy little marriage story at the end. And it's not a happy ending as it's opposed to, ending. you know, uh, Oklahoma, you have a wedding at the end, mm-hmm. uh, Carousel, you have some sense of reconciliation, South Pacific, you have the reconstruction of a happy family, family mm-hmm. on the hillside, yeah. um, Sound of Music, you know, they get away from the Nazis, they yay. They to Switzerland, uh, yeah. They go to America and become you, a singing troupe. <laughs> But here you end actually with a with a very with a tragic ending. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the snuffles in the theater usually as something wonderful soars at the end, and Anna is weeping over the dead king's body, and the young king is taking his place. And as you say, yeah, he is uh, conceivable. He is wanting to make a difference, or at least that's the way he's portrayed yeah. to be more modern. But it's a it's a sad ending. It's, it's a, a sad. Well, it, it's a yeah, it's a funny ending, isn't it? Because it's. I mean, it's the it's the death of a culture and the coming in of, you know, basically yes. Western culture. So, yeah, we're we're meant to weep a little bit. But also, I, you know, it, this is written for a Western audience, very much for a Western audience. Right. So I think we're yes, also yes. supposed to leave the, the theater with a sense of satisfaction. We won. Right. We we yes. made Thailand like America and Chung Lung. Those poor sort of, backward those people. Poor backward people. You know. And it's it's too yeah. bad because the yeah. king really was. I mean, what a it's hard not to love that guy, but good for them. Right. Like good that this new enlightened yeah. day. And, you know, 50, 60, 70 years later, we look back and say, yeah, that's kind of the residential school system playing itself out. Exactly. That's not a triumphal story. That's a tragic story about the death yeah. of a beautiful culture because, you know, of Western guns and germs and steel you know like that this whole kind of way of life uh ended very tragically and so i don't know like i don't know if you can if you can rest something like a a truly ambiguous ending from the king and i because it is you know as you say the music soars something wonderful plays and we're meant to leave the theater with a sense of satisfaction can you find you know in in getting to know different cultures how do you discover the something wonderful that's there and see the difference and celebrate it as opposed to want to impose enlightened views. These are, I think, troubling questions in terms of any missionary work, um, certainly from the 19th and 20th century. But I think there are also questions that face us as as, uh, especially privileged white dudes like you and me encounter cultures different from ours in an increasingly globalized world. Um, What is the something wonderful to discover without the imposition of a kind of uh, assumption about what's best, what's right, Mm -hmm. without, just to make it more complex, betraying commitment to gender equality and equality for gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual folks and uh, awareness of the, uh, the, the white sense of owning the truth, you know, against all other cultures. Yeah, not to, I mean, not to put it, bring it home in this particular way, but I I feel, I mean, we've, we've seen this playing out in our own Anglican communion and you've done more, far more work on this question than I have. What does it mean as Western white gay Anglicans to go into international dialogue with a bunch of often African leaders, leaders from the Southern, the Southern cone and be told When you when you say we, you know, full equality for gays and lesbians, we hear that as a colonial imposition of Western values on our society. And to a certain degree, I think it's incumbent upon us to hear that and take that really seriously, even as we're not willing to give up on our commitment to the full equality of gays and lesbians and and all people uh, before God. It has been a really vexed issue in the Anglican communion because of 
we're, because we're the inheritors of the British colonial system, and that world still is at play in shocking ways. Still very much at play within our church. Yeah. And I don't know whether it's maybe, you know, always for folks from both sides to seek something wonderful, right? Right, right. <laughs> the encountering the other, particularly the mysterious other, looking for what is it that is wonderful here, even though we may disagree, and even though uh, there may be a deep, personal value that is being, you know, uh, uh, my own experience of wandering in through Anglican communion meetings and being confronted uh, cruelly by others. Um, It took every inch, every ounce of energy to find something wonderful in them. But I was wanting them to do the same with me. Right. It needs to go both ways. Yeah. It needs needs to to go go both both ways. ways. Yeah. Yeah. So, The King and I, a problematic and beautiful musical, um, strong women, strong feminist uh, message, problematic uh, view of intercultural dialogue. Next time we talk, it'll be The Sound of Music, where, again, we have a strong woman and uh, a soaring anthem, (laughs) climbing mountains now. Oh, yeah. They did know how to write an anthem, did they? They did know how to write an anthem. Until then. All right. I'll see you then. The Gospel of Musical Theater is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.